Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, based on what we know so far, what is the importance of the booster against Omicron? We'll discuss that. Ontario theaters are canceling shows now as new restrictions to combat Omicron come into effect. Can the music and entertainment industry survive another stretch of restrictions? And a lot of concern about Biden's Buy America policy and the impact it's going to have on the Canadian economy. Seamus O'Regan Jr., the Minister of Labor, joins us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to focus to begin the program today about what's happening with the booster shot. Uh, Moderna has now told us that they say the initial data that they have been uh, assuming, uh, collecting rather over the last little while uh, shows pretty good results when it comes to protecting against Omicron with their particular vaccine. Julie Walker has some details for us. The drug maker says the lab data is preliminary and it hasn't yet undergone scientific review, but testing by the National Institutes of Health had similar findings. A half-dose booster triggers a 37-fold increase in antibody levels able to fight Omicron. That jumps to 83-fold with a full dose, which is recommended for people with weakened immune systems. Both Moderna and Pfizer are developing shots to better match the variant. Pfizer's testing found similar results in its booster. I'm Julie Walker. Let's talk about that and, and just how effective and how necessary these uh, boosters are. Uh, to uh, do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Brian D. Lichty, who is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster's Immunology Research Center. Doctor, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to join you. Good to be back. A lot of statistics here about, about the booster itself and uh, the efficacy of them. But it's always tagged at the end with, well, we, this is all we know so far. This it really strikes me, doctor, as a work in progress. We know this is going to be good. We're just not sure how effective it's going to be. Is, is that a fair generalization? Um, yeah. So if you, if you listen to what we just heard carefully, what they're talking about is, you know, how much does a third dose increase the amount of antibodies, you know, in your bloodstream? Um, problem with that information is we don't know how much you need to protect from Omicron and whether any increase will will necessarily protect from Omicron because this is the same vaccine again, right? And the, and it's made to target spike, but the spike of Omicron is quite different than the vaccine. So when they say this is a, a work in progress, this is what we're trying to learn, have the boosters been around long enough for us, for us to make any determination about just how effective they are? Of course, there's fewer people who've had a third dose who then become yeah. exposed to Omicron. And, and it's that real-world world data that we need to understand this. So in the lab, you can figure out how much does this increase immunity, but it's the real world where we can then find out, well, is that good enough? Is that a big enough increase to protect people? On some levels, it's all we have right now, right? So mm-hmm. um, until there's, you know... Uh, different vaccines uh, designed to deal with variants, um, all we can do right now is to get another dose and um, an increase in antibodies. And the thing that it, they're not measuring, unfortunately, from my point of view as an immunologist, is they're not measuring the, the, the other type of immunity, the T-cell immunity, that the vaccine should also be inducing because uh, that immunity is against other parts of the spike that, that maybe haven't changed in Omicron. And it's that immunity may not protect you from getting infected, but will help you fight it so that you don't end up in the hospital. And and that's always been the, the most important thing here. 
we know already that um, Omicron is going to infect some vaccinated people. About a third of people will be protected if they have two doses. The rest of people with two doses are, you know, susceptible to being infected and maybe getting sick. Um, the question, the real question is, how many will end up in the hospital? Because, and that's the math that everyone's trying to figure out now. We don't have all the variables. Is if a lot more people get infected because Omicron spreads better, what proportion of that large number of people will end up, or will that overwhelm? The Canadian healthcare system—that's the thing we don't really understand yet. But and but the, to your point, I think that you, I'm glad you repeated that because that's the message I think we've been getting. Because people are going to say, "Well, it's not as severe as some of the other ones." We're not sure, but that seems to be the indication so far. But they're talking about mass numbers. In other words, if, if we could still overwhelm the healthcare system, maybe not with ICUs necessarily, but you don't know how this variant's going to actually impact each individual, do you? I mean. Person A could could test positive, and Person B could test positive, and and it could manifest itself in very different ways in e- either one of them. Yeah, and I'm a little worried, you know, that because this was spotted in South Africa, and the first reports were that they thought maybe it was milder. Yeah, it might be misleading because more recent data, although it's it's even um, you know fresher and therefore based on less uh, data, fewer people. Um, out of Denmark and, and uh, England, you know, they're saying that, well, there's actually no evidence that it's it's milder or that fewer people end up in the hospital. So the, the problem with the South African data is that it's less clear how many people had been previously infected there. but the So that, you know, has an impact. Most importantly, though, the people thing people don't realize or forget is the average age in South Africa is 27. So that is a very different population than we have here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. You can't make a comparison between you know that data and what it'll do here. It's too early. You mentioned uh, T cells a minute ago, Doctor. If you could just maybe circle back and talk a little about that, and I think we're all doing a lot more reading about immunology and and, and uh, things of this nature, that, just to, so we can have some sort of an informed decision on this. Uh, yep. When you say T cells, are we talking what the neutralization uh, titres, T-I-T-R-E-S. Is that what we're referring to there? Uh, neutralization titer, that's that's the uh, the amount of antibodies, which okay. are proteins that circulate in your bloodstream. And that's what's m- most easily measured. And, and so the data we just heard about from Moderna and Pfizer about, you know, what the booster does, they they mostly just measure your titer, which is, is that. It's the antibodies that are in your blood, that can bind to and neutralize the virus and prevent it from infecting. That has to happen via spike. And and that's the tricky bit here. Whereas, you know, the immune system is more complicated than that. And, and we have these immune cells, white blood cells that are in our blood as well and in our tissues that call T cells who can recognize little bits of the virus that are presented to them by infected cells. And, and, and those bits uh, of spike are, are recognized um, when you're vaccinated and you develop T-cells that can help fight and um, blunt the infection and, and, you know, keep you from getting too sick and prevent mm-hmm. the spread of the virus deep into your lungs, for example. Um, the vaccines will also induce that, but it's, it's a little more technically difficult to, to, to measure that. And so 
they the big farmers tend not to because you know it's 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 more difficult so um the quick and dirty test is that tighter and that is the antibodies but um as an immunologist i'm hoping that it's the other guys um that are going to keep us um healthy or at least keep us out of the hospital uh, and a third dose will help that it's i think i heard it described the other day as the, this the booster this third dose is uh, it's it's kind of like a shot of adrenaline for the vaccine that we already have yeah that's one way of describing it you know it may not even really be a booster there are other vaccines um like the hpv vaccine which is very effective that doesn't become fully effective till you've had three doses so all vaccines you you get you know additional doses and technically you call them boosters i guess but um, it might be that um, this these these are new vaccines. We, we you know haven't been using them for very long. There's millions and millions of people have received them, so we understand what one dose does and two doses do. And now we're learning what three doses do, and maybe you know that's the magic number to give you a protection that'll at least keep you out of the hospital. But the problem we have is that we know that Omicron's spreading really well. And we don't know what that's going to translate into in terms of how many Canadians will end up in the hospital as a result. And and the math is is a little challenging right now. And and to your point from uh, earlier in the conversation here, we're not even sure just how effective this this is against uh, this particular uh, variant, this Omicron. Because uh, that was the concern initially that, okay, it seems to have worked on the other variants that we've uh, been dealing with over the last two years. But this one here, I, I, there's more data to be gathered, I would imagine, before we can make it, that determination. Well, I think, you know, there's enough people infected with it now that we're pretty sure that only about a third of people with two doses are protected. That's sort of the numbers coming out of Europe, which I think are, you know, more representative of how things will go here. So I think we're we're getting pretty clear about that part. The of course there's a delay on whether or not people end up in the hospital. So the hospitalization, ICU death rate, that those numbers, that data always lags by weeks to a month because it takes you know time for all of that to unfold. And you know this is a really new thing. So we don't know how that's going to go yet. We soon will, um, and hopefully you know these early reports that it's it's. Uh, milder and that vaccination will keep people out of the hospital um, to a significant degree. You know, hopefully that's all true and and we're not going to end up in a big mess, but it's too early to know. And so governments are, you know, erring on the, the side of caution in terms of um, what they're doing. And many organizations like the NHL are, are also mm-hmm. doing things like that right now because we don't know. It's an unknown. But what we do know is that, um, the one tool we do have in front of us beyond going back to, um, you know, lockdowns and, and social distancing and all those things, which do work um, and keep us safe, is the third dose. So I'm not saying the third dose um, won't protect you. It, it will probably give you a greater degree of protection. Uh, I'm just saying that we don't know yet um, how well it's going to work. But it's an improvement. Anybody that's always the T cells must go up. It's an improvement exactly. over two doses, so um, it's worth getting regardless. But, 
But that's part of the consistent message anyway, isn't it? That uh, even with the, the booster shot of the three doses, uh, you're not bulletproof. I mean, we still have to look at the social distancing, masking, and all these sorts of things. That the, there's, there's still a protocol that needs to be followed then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's particularly true of two doses. A lot of people, you know, use the, we're using the language, oh, I'm fully vaccinated. But, but like I said, we don't even know if two doses of these vaccines is, is sufficient you know, at all, let alone for Omicron. And and so um, for people to think they're fully vaccinated, therefore they can just, you know, ignore all the rules. um, Maybe that's not too smart. So the, the, the other element of this is, is is there a possibility uh, that what we may have to do is develop a a vaccine specifically for Omicron? I mean, Johnson and Johnson says they're working on that right now. Uh, and they're the ones, of course, with only one dose. So I'm not sure how far along the road they are there. But is is that sort of work going on right now, or are we waiting to see if we have a comfort level with uh, the the vaccines that we have now? Um, the problem with that approach, in my view, uh, is that we could chase Omicron, and then we could chase the next thing, and we could chase the next thing, and we could just be you know going all over. If you think about it as you know, hockey analogy, you could chase the puck all over the ice and, mm-hmm. and never quite catch up to it. Uh, we've got to, you know, in, in Gretzky terms, we've got to anticipate where the puck's going to be and skate to that place. Uh, <laughs> and, and that takes, you know, smarter uh, vaccine design. And I don't want to blow our own horn, but you know, maybe some of your listeners may have heard that McMaster's going to start a trial with our own vaccine uh, in January, which which is designed to anticipate future variants um, because it's not just spike. And, and so I think that maybe that's going to be the future of, of the vaccines for, for, for this coronavirus, for COVID, is, is designing them to anticipate variants rather than you know, chase the puck all over the ice. Uh, and by all means, Doctor, blow your own horn. I mean, there's some wonderful work going on uh, in your department at McMaster University, and and uh, we're excited about that. And uh, I know an awful an awful lot of the initial research uh, when when this whole thing started uh, to almost two years ago now uh, was happening uh, at McMaster as well. So by all means, uh, let's let's continue uh, to sing from the highest mountaintop about the work that's going on there because it's uh, it's all for the benefit of everyone that's uh, that's going to be impacted by this. Uh, and to that end, we'll uh, carry on the conversations. We're just about out of time on this particular session. But uh, it's always great to get your perspective on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Not a problem. Have a good day. You too. Dr. Brian D. Litchie, of course, an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster's Immunology Research Center. And we have heard that, and we reported that on the program a little while ago, but some of the work going on at McMaster, that there could be kind of a, a, a catch-all vaccine that could be developed and they're doing that work at McMaster right now uh, and uh, we'll see I mean that's you know the protocol that uh, we've talked about this time and time again of course with the testing that has to go on and it's going to take uh, a period of time for that to happen but it's pretty exciting that that sort of work is going on and uh, and carrying on with McMaster you're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML let's talk about the uh, the restrictions that are in place now we're going to talk about ontario but i mean this is really going on right across the country now quebec uh just uh, yesterday announcing even more restrictions uh because of the uh, um the wave that's going on here and the newest variant that's happening and uh well we know here in ontario the premier doug ford made new restrictions announcements on friday uh saying that omicron variant is just too transmissible to allow the status quo to continue but as global's david aiken tells us 
Further restrictions and further health measures could also be implemented. The math of Omicron is simple and inevitable. Omicron's R-value, its reproductive rate, is anywhere between 3 and 5 in Canada. A single case, two or three days later, turns into three cases. Two or three days later, turns into nine cases. Two or three days later, turns into 27 cases. Now, only a small percentage of the Omicron infected will need hospital care, but with the sheer number of expected cases, even a small percentage could overwhelm health care systems. If we even see, you know, point. Oh, one percent of all the cases and we expect, you know, a third of the population to get it. That's enough to cause a lot of difficulties in the healthcare system. So you can understand to a point, I guess, why governments are being so cautious at this stage, because they don't want to see that kind of spread, or at least they want to try to mitigate the impact it's going to have. Uh, but by putting restrictions on, well, it's it's kind of a kick in the shins to an awful lot of industries and businesses that were trying to get back on their feet after the uh, the first few waves uh, that we've been putting up with for the last 22 months or so, including the uh, the entertainment business, live music, live theater is uh, is suffering and for all intents and purposes has been locked down uh, because of the numbers and the restrictions on capacity. Well, bring Aaron Benjamin into the conversation. Aaron is the president and CEO of Canadian Live Music Association. Uh, Aaron, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Nice to be here. This is, I, you know, I, I was thinking back as I was looking at some of the restrictions and the impact that it's had, and I, I can remember when the first uh, wave hit and we had to have the shutdown. Of course, that's almost two years ago now. And I mean, here in the Hamilton area, we had tickets for the Pearl Jam concert. Now, and, well, it's all on hold. Don't worry. A few weeks and they'll just reschedule everything. Uh, and th- you've gone through all these ups and downs like a roller coaster ride for the last two years, Aaron. Uh, and I know, you know, a lot of the live music venues and other places thought, okay, we're just almost getting back on our feet right now. Things are looking pretty good. And then bang, you get hit with this. What are you hearing from members and people that are trying to make a living uh, through the entertainment business right now? It's got to be a very frustrating experience. Well, it's exhausting for sure. And I mean, it's not like the writing wasn't on the wall at a certain point, though. And, you know, this province originally had moved to cap a thousand uh, venues with a thousand ca- capacity um, at fifty percent, and then quickly moved to extend those restrictions bro- more broadly. And when when the thousand cap restriction came out, it was you know we all knew it was just a matter of time based on you know we all watched the news. So it's we've been here before. I think there's a a, a, a lot of stoicism out there. I think there's still a lot of hope and a, and a lot of folks who understand now what hunkering down actually means. But the bills keep coming. So the, the monthly expenses, the overhead, uh, this hasn't gone away. Um, and so this is our main priority right now is I I feel in many ways like we're back square one, but we're not, we understand a little bit more about how this is going to go down, but it's essential that we find supports for these businesses who can't operate, uh, really at all. Well, and just general math indicates that, you know, when you've got expenses, as you just mentioned, the bills comes in, there's the rent, there's the hydro, there's uh, if there's no revenue coming in here, I, I don't know how they, they, they can survive and pay these things. I know there are some government support programs, uh, but I'm not so sure that, that those are going to be there for any great length of time or if they're even covering all the bases here. Well, they're, they're certainly not covering all the bases. Uh, the federal government just passed uh, what, what's known as Bill C-2, which is an extension of the wage subsidy and the rent relief program and a, and a, a tourism recovery program, which some of our members will be eligible for. And it's retroactive. So that's good news uh, for some of these folks. But it certainly doesn't help sort of the independent freelance contractor or sole proprietors, et cetera. So there's some challenges there. And, and we're going to need 
to look to the province uh, who, uh, you know, the premier said in the press conference the other day that, you know, they were looking to the federal government where everyone's looking somewhere. We're going to have to come up with some solutions. Look, there's no question governments are tired of spending money, but the reality is some of us are just harder hit and have been. You're right. When you say 22 months, I mean, 22 months uh, for the most part, um, you know, little to no revenue. So it's, and while, while other businesses are, are, are really winning, it's a very unfair situation. Nobody likes the way it's gone down, but the reality is that uh, tourism, travel, hospitality, and live events um, have been just so unfairly crushed, and we need to help them, and that's just the way it is. Do you get the sense, looking back on the last 22 months, that that, that maybe governments didn't understand uh, how important uh, these factors are to, to an economy? To Well, here in Ontario, we can talk about specifically uh, tourism dollars, entertainment dollars, things of this nature. I mean, the, some of them are no-brainers. Yeah, you know, the city of New York relies on people coming in to see a live theater on Broadway. We get that. Uh, but it's a big deal here in Ontario, too, and I think we have probably a better understanding of that and maybe a better appreciation of it now uh, that's been taken away from us, to a certain extent, well, it, anyway. It's an excellent point, Bill. I mean, when we look at potential to rebuild and recover, right? We've heard that over our world. We're going to build back better. We're going to rebuild. We're going to recover. I mean, the entertainment industries are essential to that activity. Uh, live music, for example, have been contributing about $3 billion to the federal GDP and creating 72,000 jobs. But, you, you know, when you take a when you start to really unpack what numbers and statistics like that mean, it ma- we look at the sort of the broader ecology and some of the smaller businesses which have been hardest hit in this are elemental to the success of the what we call the venue ladder. So we may not have had an appreciation or enough of one prior to the pandemic about what how intrinsic uh, so many companies and types of organizations are, how essential the supply chain is to the survival of something like the live music industry. And I and I and I I'm absolutely confident that uh, governments at every level uh, are you know many of them have been working very closely with us and we're very grateful for all of the time and effort and financial support to date. But um, there's no question when we when we step back we look at huge chunks of our cultural infrastructure falling away like a melting iceberg gone forever. And exactly how are we rebuilding without some of these you know um, these activities that will bring people back to example to a downtown urban core. Um, and support all the businesses around it. So there's a there's a horrible chain reaction that's been happening for two years, and this is um, you know if we're not careful, we will we will continue to lose vast chunks of of this infrastructure that we really will need to recover effectively. Yeah, and as I've talked to some of the folks in this area that have been impacted by this, and it's uh, they were starting to feel a lot more confident uh, two weeks ago when I had a conversation with a fellow by the name of Tim Potisic who runs uh, Sonic yep, Onion here. He's a great promoter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Tim, I'm sure. sure uh, and, and you know, he did, they, he was doing some of the stuff for the great company. He says, yeah, things are starting to turn around. We're starting to get some positive vibes. And then bingo, this hits. And they have to understand, I think the government has to understand, I think people have a better understanding now of how how wide-ranging the impact of this is. Uh, you know, I mean, the Shaw Festival just shut down their Christmas program. I know that's very successful. People love to go to the, the two Christmas shows they put on every year. But that's not just the actors or the performers. Uh, it's the people that work in the theater. It's the lighting people, the riggers. They, you know, there's a lot of people right now that said, you're kidding, I'm not going to work this week. Uh, it, well, you're you're exactly right, and and let's go beyond that. It's the uh, it's the restaurants in town, it's the hotels, yeah. it's travel. Maybe you're flying in for a major concert or event. It's the parking lots, the Ubers, the corner stores, uh, and and the suppliers. All of the goods and services that you would see move in and out of those facilities, whether it's an outdoor festival or an indoor venue, uh, the supply chain is is you know really really impacted, and we don't always see those. 
those types of companies, you know, the staging folks, the people who provide the actual, you know, the hard goods for some of this, and they're not, they have been missed in some nets uh, for support as well. And it's been a big part of my job is to make sure that that supply chain is well recognized, because here's the other thing. If we lose some of these companies and these suppliers, um, it's, it becomes impossible to put on a show to, to really simplify it. If we don't have a stage to stand on exactly what are we, where are we going to, you know, put the artists. So a lot of those, uh, a lot of those companies have gone and, uh, and they're not coming back. It's not like they've just, they're sort of sitting it out, you know, waiting. Um, so when we don't have equipment or what about when five festivals are happening in a region at once and they only, now there's only one supplier. So one of them will get, uh, access to the gear, et cetera. So in the long run, I think there'll be some opportunities created, you know, these gaps will be filled, but in the and then, first of all, we hate to lose companies that were formerly very viable. And second of all, I think we have a very significant problem right ahead of us as, as, as you know, if we ever get out of this thing. Yeah, and your point's well taken. We're not back to square one. And I, I don't think anybody's, you know, looking at it from that standpoint. But Aaron, the rebuilding that's going to have to go on here as a result of this, as you mentioned, some, some businesses are just not coming back. Some venues may close the doors and not reopen them again. Uh, mm-hmm. So we almost have to recreate ourselves. And I guess the tragedy here is that we've got a pretty vibrant uh, arts and, and entertainment industry in this country. Well, it's it's taken a while to grow it. Uh, you know, we've had some some ups and downs in that. But I mean, you know, we have, I think we have global respect right now for our music industry, for the artists, uh, for the performers, for the people that produce the music and make the music. Uh, live theater venues popping up all over the place. It's, it was happening. It was it was something that was actually thriving, and uh, it's not anymore. And uh, you can't just flick the switch and say, okay, we're back, because it doesn't work that easily, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, it's been – I've refused to use past tense to when I refer to the pandemic. It wasn't that long ago. People were like, oh, you know, it must, it's so great. Live music's coming back. And, what you know, it was too bad when the pandemic was – taking out live music, but good thing it's back. And, and it's just been so fragile. And I think that fr- fragility is what we'll be dealing with for a long time. You're absolutely right. I mean, Canada, Hamilton, amazing live music city, for sure. Uh, so many incredible artists uh, coming out of Canada and a lot of activity. In fact, Canada was poised to have its biggest li- year in live music um, uh, in 2020. And it's all okay. I mean, I want to, I want to, our, I'm sure your listeners are like all of us are just exhausted from the never ending doom and gloom. But but I would say for the hardest hit, I think what's really important that people recognize is that these folks have never come out of it fully. And and it would be if if we do care about especially our local infrastructure, we always talk about shopping local. I would encourage folks to take a look at ways that you might be able to support local venues again, whether that's takeout or merchandise or buying tickets to shows you might never be able to go to. <laughs> Um, uh, just to ensure, because that whole, if we, if we lose that, that cultural vibrancy to our downtown cores, whether they're small cities or major urban centers, um, we lose something really important. And that is our ability to attract people to to come and live and work and play in our, in our downtown neighborhoods. And, um, uh, and that would be a real shame because I think the effort that would take to build that back will just be, um, that is so long-term, uh, you know, I think it will have a very long lasting impact for all of us. Well, because we've seen that growth, and I mean, you know, in Hamilton, you've seen that, and it was all organic. I mean, there's an Absolutely. incredible music scene and, and restaurant scene that basically just grew out of public interest. I mean, it wasn't government funded or anything. Same thing with London. I mean, you know, our, our listeners down there at CFPL, uh, you know, the music scene and some of the great places along Richmond Street in the downtown area, then Richmond Oxford area, uh, some some fabulous venues there too. 
and they they kind of grew out of the fact that hey you know we want something like this we need this kind of mm -hmm. entertainment uh and the, the audiences for that aren't going away they're sitting at home right now saying when can we see this again so that you're right i guess that just adds to the anxiety and the frustration here and uh you know i guess we can only hope that this isn't going to be long lasting so we can kind of get back and start to revive some of these these venues and 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 give the the, the people that perform the opportunity to kind of get back on their feet too Oh, you're absolutely right. And the artists, of course, are at the heart of all of this. And and when you talk about London and Hamilton, two great examples of music cities, of, of yeah. uh, municipalities who have really leveraged the potential that music can bring to a place. And you have have, have invested in the policies and the and the you know the work that uh to grow uh local music assets and, and it shows it is amazing. Look at London just hosting the <laughs> squeaking through at the CCMAs and yeah. um the the country music awards and and other and Hamilton hosting the Junos, one of my favorite Junos ever being in Hamilton uh, a couple of years ago. So, so much great potential and, and uh, work that's already been done. And, and it's not for it's not for nothing. I think that um, it really positions the cities who have done the work to come back, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, more strongly than maybe some others. Um, it really entrenches for people who are not involved in the music industry, really entrenches for them the value of, of that activity, just like you say. Um, and I think what it will what ultimately do will help rebuild that uh, and rebound consumer confidence the moment that we're able to gather again. So, you know, everyone needs to sit tight. Folks need to get vaccinated and do everything they can to um, slow this crazy thing down. And uh, hopefully we'll be back on stage uh, together as uh, before you know it. Well, and one way that you can do that, as you say, is is to support the industry in whatever way you can. And then, and I know talking to some of the people that run the venues, uh, it's a uh, you know, if you bought tickets for an event that's supposed to be happening next week and it's not happening because of this, uh, hang on to your ticket. It, the date will come back. Uh, you know, just postponed. They haven't canceled things yet. They're postponing things. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about the Pearl Jam show that was canceled at the uh, Cops Coliseum from two years ago. I know they're coming back. I, I just don't know when. Uh, so we're still hanging on to the tickets. The Arkells is talking to those guys after they were at the Great Cup. They're supposed to do a show and it was canceled. They will mm -hmm. come back. Be patient. Hang on uh, and, and just hang on to those tickets. And, and that guarantees you a spot when they finally do come back. And they will come back, won't they? Uh, they will for sure. And, and the other thing folks can do is, is help their local uh, elected officials at every level of government um, uh, uh, understand how important these businesses and organizations are to you. So if, when when we have when we need more financial help, uh, this is what it looks like. It's going to take a village and governments are very reticent to continue to invest. Uh, but that is what is going to be necessary here. And so if you care about the industry, maybe you can help your Drop a note to your elected official and let them know that the, these companies matter to you. Absolutely. Aaron, great talking with you. Uh, hang in there. Uh, this will end, uh, and uh, we'll get back on our feet one way or another. But uh, in the short term, we're missing it. We miss live theater and we miss live entertainment. And uh, we just, again, remind our listeners that uh, you can be supportive of that in whatever way uh, you can to try to make sure that, uh, that they get the message that we're still here for them. Thanks, as always. Uh, great talking with you uh, best of the season to you and yours and uh, we'll talk again soon hopefully with some more positive news no kidding really appreciate the time bill have a great day take care that's aaron benjamin of course president and ceo of the canadian live music association you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to focus on 
a very, very pressing issue. And that, of course, is the, uh, well, the relationship between uh, the United States economy and the Canadian economy. And, of course, the Buy America policies that the Biden administration is uh, touting right now and the impact that it's going to have. Uh, a number of people have been sp speaking out on this. The Prime Minister, uh, the Finance Minister, uh, who's also the Deputy Prime Minister, of course, and a number of uh, members of the uh, Cabinet have been in conversation uh, with American business types about the uh, ramifications of this, including the Minister of Labour. And uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome the uh, Federal Minister of Labour, uh, Seamus O'Regan Jr., to back to the program, actually. Mr. Minister, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Bill, good to be back. Good to be back. Let's, let's talk about that, if we could, Seamus, about the conversations yeah. you've had. Uh, we know about the one-on-ones between uh, between uh, the Prime Minister and, and Joe Biden. Uh, mm. But I, I'll harken back to 2809 when we were coming out of the recession, and there was a similar policy announced uh, by the uh, the Obama administration uh, about Buy America, and we were going to, you know, just American goods, American products, American this and that. And it was the full-court press that was put on us by ministers such as yourself to go down there and talk to business people that actually pressured the the, the U.S. government uh, to maybe be a little more open-minded about this. Is, is that the hope here too? Yeah, full core press. Uh, and not just business people. Uh, you know, last week I spoke with Marty Walsh. He was the Secretary of Labor yeah. in the Biden administration. Uh, we were meant, you know, you're talking about things being uh, canceled and postponed. We were meant to go down. Uh, full core press of union leadership uh, led by Hassan Youssef, who, you know, was the head of the Canadian Labor Congress, now a senator. And uh, we were going down with the new head of the Canadian Labor Congress, B. Brusque, and uh, with Jerry Diaz, of course, Munifor, and, and a number of other labor leaders to really lay it on. So, you know, with the Biden administration, it's it's not just business people who hold sway. With this administration particularly, it's union leadership. So going yeah. down with a full labor contingent was really important because the thought was, uh, and it's happening, uh, is that union leadership on both sides of the border could work together and explain a fact. I mean, like you were just talking about the history of this and it springs up again and again. The fact is there is no such thing as an all-American made car. It does not exist. 50% mm -hmm. of it's Canadian. In the same way, there's no really no such thing as an all-Canadian-made car. And, I, you know, your audience, for the most part, knows this. It's, sure. uh, you know, Canadian-made car is 50% American. You know, the, you, you, between the parts and, you know, it, it goes back and forth, a single car, six, seven, eight, nine times across the border. That is how, you know, we have grown an efficient and competitive um, our auto industry in North America. And, uh, you know, what we have to remind them of is that fact. Um, you know, it ain't going away. And, and what's at issue here, just to remind your audience, is part of the Build Back Better program for the United States, um, a 34% tax incentive uh, to buy, quote unquote, all American made EV vehicles. We applaud the Biden administration for going, you know, to, to going all in on, on climate change and on building back better. We are well aligned on that. But a 34% tax credit available to Americans, in this case, for a quote-unquote all-American-made car, is the you know, equivalent of a 34% tariff. We can't have it. We will fight it. We will retaliate. I guess the thing that frustrates me, and it must you too, uh, Joe Biden was part of that Obama administration that cut the previous deal. So this is not new to him. I mean, he understands what's going on. I get the sense there's a lot more politics than pragmatism going on with that policy. Well, look, you know, uh, and, and we're seeing developments right now with Senator Manchin, uh, you know, et cetera. We remain vigilant because that legislation is still uh, before uh, before Congress. So, you know, uh, until we know that provision is gone um, or, or, you know, adjusted to meet Canadian uh, labor needs, uh, you know, we're on the case and, and we won't let up. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, as a poli- I'm, after winning my third election now, I got to start calling myself a politician, but I am. And, and <laughs> you know, there, there, there is some of this that goes on. There's no question. But you can't get, you know, cocky about it and say, well, we just think that that's theatrics. They don't mean it. And then it happens. Um, so you just you have to take it seriously. Um, and so we are. We are. I mean, what, what, what we're talking about here, if this went through, it would basically mean the end of the auto pact. And what we have to remind our American friends is this has served us very well. Um, you know, the fact that Americans build certain things and we build other things means we've got very efficient and good at it. The market has played out. And and if we are going to compete, you know, in the in a growing, hugely growing EV market uh, going into the next uh, decade and two, uh, we got to be able to compete with Germans, with with Koreans, with Japanese. And and the only way North America is going to do that is doing what we've always done, which is work well together. And um, we, you know, so so when you, when you start veering from that, uh, we got to be we got to remain vigilant. It's as simple as that. Well, and as you say, there's a history here, and and you know, here in Southern oh, yeah. Ontario, I mean, I know you know this history quite well. Uh, you've got Orlick Industries and Stackpole right here in Hamilton. I mean, they supply parts for just about every car that's made in North America because of that supply chain issue. Uh, you know, does does the Biden policy not understand that? Okay, that means that they're not going to do that anymore. They're going to have to produce those because what American Listen, business people are telling you've already heard this. Say we can't yeah. do what the Canadians are doing. It'll take us years to ramp up to that. Yeah, and there are and there are you know we've spoken with senators. We've we we speak with uh, people at the state level as well. Um, and you know when I spoke with Marty Walsh last week, uh, you know when you, when a guy named Marty Walsh from Massachusetts and a guy named Seamus Ariga from Newfoundland talk <laughs> for ten minutes, or what part of Ireland are you from? Yeah. Um, and uh, also that he has cousins named Seamus, and uh, you know we talked a bit of hockey, and you know this is all part of the Irish way of doing things. You, you sure. figure one another out, and then you cut right to the quick, which we did. And and look, he I, I'll say this about him: he's a he's a rational, good fellow, and uh, he heard me out. He went, yeah, look, let me take this back. It was a calm, rational conversation. Uh, I firmly believe that the facts are on our side. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the politics that they've got to conduct down there. I mean, but you know, reality is reality, and we are not only good friends as we've shown throughout history, um, but our particular governments are so aligned. We are both pro pro union. We both fight hard for workers, and we both believe firmly in combating climate change. But like I said to Marty, I grew up uh, in Newfoundland, you know, an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. And I often say, as I said, when I was Minister of Natural Resources, uh, we didn't have the luxury of ideology. I mean, I, you know, I take the world as it is. I'm a pragmatist. I'm a practical man. And uh, look, you know, you're Irish, Marty. I mean, you know, we take the world as it is. And, and, you know, I think that that's how he sees the world, too. So the fact of the matter is there is no American-made car. It's 50% Canadian, and and the inverse is true as well. Um, let's work together as we always have, and and not only you know maintain, but build out and and be even more ambitious in the EV market uh, as a as a North American entity. Well, uh, Secretary Walsh's uh, boss is a, an Irishman too, so I'm hoping that that sort of thing permeates uh, when he has the next meeting with him too. <laughs> that 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 sense of pragmatism that's that certainly would be helpful. Uh, because of what's existing, and I, I guess you know the the punch in the gut that we felt here in Ontario uh, was because of all the announcements. I mean, we, I mean, you know, even the premier here has come on side with this. This is the you know the same guy that took three years ago canceled just about everything that the previous government did when it came to EVs, you know, the rebate program, the charging stations, everything else. 
I, I don't know if he's had this, uh, you know, conversion on the road to Damascus or what's going on here. But, you know, when you get Doug Ford and Jerry Dice sitting at the podium together saying we're going to work together on this, that's that's kind of magical. And it bode well, I think, for the for the, the future of the industry here in Ontario. And if they go ahead with this policy, as you mentioned, a lot of these things that they've already announced about, you know, we're going to refurbish the Oshawa plant and the Brampton plant, et cetera, that goes out the window. That That would be catastrophic, wouldn't it? Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, and to speak to Jerry, you know, I, I when, when when Jerry and Premier Ford had uh, their joint press conference on fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage, I had uh, lunch with Jerry later that day. Jerry's another practical guy. He'll you know he'll work with whoever. I, I'm the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we just passed uh, legislation through the House on. Uh, on 10 uh, paid days of sick leave for all uh, employees within federal jurisdictions like uh, transportation, marine, air, banking, et cetera. You know, it's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people. And we got to pass unanimously. I worked hard with the conservatives. I'll work with whoever. I'll, I'll listen. I'll campaign like a rabid partisan. Don't question. But but uh, but when I'm in a position where, you know, I can further the, you know, the ends that I need, I'll work with whoever. And I've had very a very good working relationship with people on the conservative side. I think Jerry feels the same way. Uh, with Premier Ford on issues that really matter. And I think Premier Ford, as well as you know, a lot of other politicians in this country of all stripes, realize that labor is really important uh, as we come out of uh, as we come out of COVID, as we continue to come out of COVID. I mean, when I got when I became Minister of Labor, uh, I think uh, you know your local members of Parliament, Lisa and Chad, and especially Philomena, came up to me and said, "Congratulations on becoming Minister of Labor." Now, can we immediately talk about and you know, <laughs> it's about about issues like this? They they said it all in the same breath. And of course, I got to fill some big shoes with Philomena Tassi, you know, who was previously Minister yeah. of Labor. But we're all aligned on it. Like we, you know, they, they know the interests of their constituents, uh, regardless of political stripe. Uh, and that's the way we got to move. That's, listen, whenever we have been our best working with the Americans, it's been Team Canada. Uh, that is how we've achieved things. And when things are really important like this, then we got to work together. There was no sense then in the conversations you had that there was any sense of confrontation. I mean, uh, such as the previous administration that basically said, see in court if you don't like it, go ahead and challenge us. Uh, that, that's a long, drawn-out uh, procedure if we had to go down that road. Uh, and it's, it's not really where you want to be, I would think. No, uh, I still think we have time. Uh, as I said, this, you know, this legislation uh, is still before Congress. We don't expect any movement until January. Uh, it means that for a lot of us, it will be, you know, busy Christmas holidays, but that's what we signed up for. Um, you know, we gotta, we gotta get this done. I, I so far, as I've said, I've had, um, a, a rational and receptive, uh, audience when I've spoken with them, like, you know, like I said, Secretary Walsh was uh, quite congenial about it and said he would take this back to the administration. Look, the Americans are a big country. You, you know, people, uh, people who are listening know that they know the United States well, but you know, it means that you got to get their attention when your population as a whole, even working together is still the same as the population of California. Uh, they got a lot on their plate and I understand that. But it is in our national interest and our, our argument to them is it is in their national interest to pay attention to this and get it right. Which is what we're hoping is going to happen. You mentioned uh, Senator Manchin and uh, with what he's going on with right now, there's a possibility, I guess, uh, that they may actually start to break this bill up and do it in segments. Uh, so this this may not even be uh, something that's going to be before the entire Congress anytime soon, because uh, I think the relief package that the president's talking about is far more important to, uh, from from his 
standpoint anyway when he's talking about his priorities. So uh, we're kind of at the behest, I guess, of what's going to happen with the Congress, and uh, we'll have, be watching with great interest. Uh, and good to know that the conversations have been happening already about this, uh, because this is such an important thing going forward for the Ontario economy. Uh, as always, Minister, it's a pleasure having you on the program. I know your time is tight, and I really appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, all the best of the season. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and yours. And uh, we'll hopefully have some good news when we talk again in January. Bill, every time I think of the Canadian legislative process is convoluted, I look south of the border and go, oh, boy, <laughs> they got yeah. a lot on their plate down there. But anyway, we're getting, you know, we are we are fighting the good fight. And uh, I, I remain confident that uh, rational minds will prevail. Merry Christmas to you and to all your listeners. Thanks again. Minister of Labor, of course, Seamus O'Regan Jr. Thanks again. Uh, and, and such an important decision uh, that, that needs to be made down there. And, and as the minister just said in our conversation, there's history here. And, and I mean, recent history is, is, you know, back in 2008, 2009. And Joe Biden was at the table for that. He gets it. And, and you don't want to start pointing fingers and saying, hey, you're just playing politics here. But we get what's going on down there. You know, we know what's going on in the United States. We know that, that, that there's a great deal of unrest on a political level. And you know that the midterm elections are coming up in 2022. And that's a factor. That's a reality. That's a political reality. Uh, and they don't want to lose the power. They don't want to lose uh, the, the slight power that they have and the slight advantage they have in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, for that matter. That would be problematic. We already know what it's like if you have a Republican-controlled Congress and a Democratic president or the other way around. Nothing gets done. You get filibusters and they block legislation. And there's a desire to try to get this done. So you have to placate those people. So I, I get where they're coming from. And I don't for a minute think that uh, the Biden administration, including Secretary Walsh that, uh, that uh, Mr. Reagan was talking with, uh, they, they get this, they grab this, but they have to look at the pragmatism and, and you know how people are going to perceive this at the same time. You're going to score political points if you say, oh, I just want good American jobs and well-paying American jobs. Of course they do. Everybody does. But you have to understand the ramifications of this. And, and what makes our auto work, our auto sector work here is that collaboration, that back and forth that goes on. You know, we do some things that they don't do that, and, and vice versa, which is why the cars go back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a, a reliance here on, on both sides. Uh, and especially here on this side, I mean, let's face it, the, as we mentioned, the, the ramifications here would be staggering. Most of the cars that are even made here in Canada are sold in the States. So we need that market and we need that sense of cooperation. So uh, we wish the minister and the prime minister and everybody else who's involved in these negotiations uh, all the best. And uh, hopefully the Americans will see the light. And uh, we're not looking for exemptions. I don't think I've ever heard that word from uh, from Minister O'Regan or from the prime minister or anybody else. They're just looking for some pragmatism to say, look, it was, you know, the old phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, when it comes to the auto sector, that should be uh, the mantra that they're all going to abide by. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.